Chapter 6 of George Boring, A Tale of Cateridris. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gary Conover, Wyndham, Maine. George Boring, A Tale of Cateridris by Richard Doddridge Blackmore. Chapter 6 we had stopped at the gate of an old farmhouse, built with massive boulder-stones, laid dry, and flushed in with mortar. As dreary a place as was ever seen, at the head of the narrow mountain gorge, with mountains towering over it, there was no sign of life about it, except that a gaunt hog trotted forth and grunted at us, and showed his tusks, and would perhaps have charged us if we had not been so many. The house looked just like a low church tower, and might have been taken for one at a distance if there had been any battlements. It seemed to be four or five hundred years old, and perhaps belonged to some petty chief in the days of Owen Glendower. "'Knock again, Thomas Edwards. Stop, let me knock,' said one of our party impatiently. "'There, waddle, waddle, waddle.' Suiting the action to the word, he thumped with a big stone heavily, till a middle-aged woman, with rough black hair, looked out of a window and screamed in Welsh to ask what this terrible noise was. To this they made answer in the same language, pointing to their sad burden, and asking permission to leave it for the doctor's inspection and the inquest, if there was to be one. And I told them to add that I would pay well, anything, whatever she might like to ask, but she screamed out something that sounded like a curse, and closed the lettuce violently. Knowing that many superstitions lingered in these mountains, as, indeed, they do elsewhere plentifully, I was not surprised at the woman's stern refusal to admit us, especially at this time of pest. But I thought it strange that her fierce black eyes avoided both me and the poor rude litter on which the body of George lay, covered with some slate worker's aprons. "'She is not the mistress,' cried Evan Peters, in great excitement, as I thought. "'Where is Hopkin? Black Hopkin, where is he?' At this suggestion, a general outcry arose in Welsh for Black Hopkin, an outcry so loud and prolonged that the woman opened the window again and screamed, as they told me afterwards, he is not at home, you noisy fools. He has gone to McKinleth. Not long would you have dared to make this noise if Hopkin of Howell was at home. But while she was speaking, the wicked door of the great arched gate was thrown open, and a gun about six feet long and a very large bore was presented at us. The quarryman drew aside briskly, and I was about to move hastily when the great swarthy man who was holding the gun withdrew it and lifted his hat to me proudly and as an equal. "'You cannot enter to this house,' he said in very good English, and by no means rudely. "'I'm sorry for it, but it cannot be. My little daughter is very ill, the last of seven. You must go elsewhere.' With these words he bowed again to me, while his sad eyes seemed to pierce my soul, and then he quietly closed the wicket and fastened it with a heavy bolt, and I knew that we must indeed go further. This was no easy thing to do, for our useless walk to— Cruggy Dwilleth, the Dewless Hills, as this farm was called, had taken us further at every step from the place we must strive for after all. The good, 
little Aber Adir. The gallant quarrymen were now growing both weary and uneasy, and in justice to them I must say that no temptation of money, nor even any appeal to their sympathies, but only a challenge of their patriotism, held them to the sad duties, owing from the living and to the dead. But knowing how proud all Welshmen are of the fame of their race and country, happily I exclaimed at last, when fear was getting the mastery, what will be said of this in England, this low cowardice of the Kimro? Upon that they looked at one another and did their best right gallantly. Now I need not go into any further details of this most sad time, except to say that Dr. Jones, who came the next day from Dolgelly, made a brief examination by order of the coroner. Of course, he had too much sense to suppose that the case was one of cholera, but to my surprise he pronounced that death was the result of asphyxia, caused by too long immersion in the water, and knowing nothing of George Boring's activity, vigor, and cultivated power in the water, perhaps he was not to be blamed for dreaming that a little mountain stream could drown him. I, on the other hand, felt as sure that my dear friend was foully murdered as I did that I should meet him in heaven. If I lived well for the rest of my life, which I resolved at once to do, there have the whole thing explained, and perhaps be permitted to glance at the man who did it, as Lazarus did at Dives. In spite of the doctor's evidence and the coroner's own persuasion, the jury found that George Burring died of the Caroline Morgan which the clerk corrected to cholera morbus, brought on by wetting his feet and eating too many fish of his own catching. And so you may see it entered now in the records of the court of the coroners of the king for Marioneth. And now I was occupied with a trouble which, after all, was more urgent than the inquiry how it came to pass. When a man is dead, it must be taken as a done thing, not to be undone, and happily... All near relatives are inclined to see it in that light. They are grieved, of course, and they put on their hat-bands and gave no dinner-parties, and they even think of their latter ends more than they might have desired to do. But after a little while, all comes around. Such things must be happening always, and it seems so unchristian to repine. And if any money had been left them, truly they must attend to it. On the other hand... If there has been no money, they scarcely see why they should mourn for nothing, and as a duty they begin to allow themselves to be roused up. But when a wife becomes a widow, it is wholly different. No money can ever make up to her the utter loss of the love time and the loneliness of the remaining years, the little turns and thoughts and touches, wherever she goes and whatever she does, which at every corner meet her with a deep, perpetual want. She tries to fetch her spirit up and to think of her duties to all around, to her children, or to guests whom trouble forces upon her for business sake, or even the friends who call to comfort, though the call can fetch her none. But all the while how deeply aches her sense that all these duties are as different as a thing can be from her love, work to her husband. What could I do? I had heard from George, but could not, for my life, remember the name of that old house in Berkshire where poor Mrs. Boring is on a visit to two of her aunts, as I said before. 
I venture to open her letter to her husband, found in his left-hand side breast pocket, and having dried it, endeavored only to make out whence she wrote. But there was nothing. Ladies scarcely ever date a letter, both for time and place, for they seem to think that everybody must know it, because they do. So the best I could do was to write to poor George's house in London, and begged that the letter might be forwarded at once. It came, however, too late to hand, for although the newspapers of that time were respectably slow and steady, compared with the rush they all make nowadays, they generally managed to outrun the post, especially in the netting season. They told me at Dalgilly, and they confirmed it at Mechlineth, that nobody must desire to get his letters at any particular time in the months of September and October, when the nuts were ripe. For the postman never would come along until they had filled their bags with nuts, for the pleasure of their families. And I dare say they do the same thing now, but without being free to declare it so. End chapter 6